Open the precious Word of God with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, the opening of the Scriptures of God. Thank you, Lord, for them. Thank you for their inspiration. Thank you for their preservation. Thank you for their interpretation. And help us with the application of these words to our lives. We commence an expository study of the first epistle of Peter to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. I want to introduce the epistle to us this morning. But before I do that, let me show you a couple of its chief verses. I go to the third verse of this first chapter. And if you're looking for a couple of verses per chapter to memorize possibly or some other method for you to participate in the study of this epistle, the third verse is certainly an excellent one. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now when speaking of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, Peter was the first man to see the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ appeared to him first after his resurrection, after appearing to Mary Magdalene. He knew about the resurrection. He was an eyewitness of it. And he knew that because of that, we had been born again to a lively hope. Our hope in Christ is not dead. It's not dry. It's not just conceptual or theoretical. It is lively because it's based on a living Redeemer who has been resurrected as well and sits at the right hand of God. If you come over to the last chapter, I'll read an important verse to you there. It's the 12th verse of chapter 5, which helps us understand the purpose of the epistle. And it is carried from Babylon in modern Iraq all the way to western Turkey by a man that was ordinarily a companion of Paul which also helps us understand the purpose of the epistle. 1 Peter 5.12 By Silvanus, a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose, I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein ye stand. Peter, confirming Paul's gospel, because Peter was writing to churches that were Paul's churches in central and western Turkey. But there's a couple of verses from this wonderful epistle of Peter, and I hope that you will participate in studying it with me. Expository preaching means that we take a book of the Bible, and beginning at the first word, we work our way through it, sentence by sentence, verse by verse, phrase by phrase, and word by word, that we might fully understand what God has given to us. Many have told me in this church as well as other places, and I've read in other places that uh, expository preaching is easier for you to remember what was taught on Sunday, to focus on it instead of a topical study that goes all over the Bible and draws from many different passages of Scripture. It tends to keep the speaker closer to the Scriptures since inspired words are driving his preaching. It helps us learn the Bible, not just the subject from the Bible, but how God wrote His Word. 
expository preaching always opens up topical studies because in these five chapters we are going to run upon subjects like marriage and employment and submission to civil authority and other topics that we will dwell on possibly at more length. This epistle, 1 Peter, that's laying before you. You know, if you if you read the Drudge Report or you read CNN or MSN, you find out from time to time that they found Peter's bicycle. You know what I'm talking about? It makes me sick. They want Peter's bicycle. They want to find his wife's bones in some tomb. They want to find his tomb. Two of us just got back from Rome where they claim that Peter's tomb is down there in the basement of that church called the Vatican. Do you know what I want from Peter? His words. And do you know what you have? His words in English. Peter never spoke a word of English in his life. He spoke in Aramaic. He spoke some Greek. He spoke some Hebrew. But we have his words in English. And they're in writing. And they have been confirmed by 2,000 years of world history and fruit bearing that they are Peter's words. I'm thankful for Peter's words. And I want you to love those words with me. First Peter. Peter's going to teach us about marriage, the second coming, government, suffering, employment, reprobation, baptism, eldership, Satan, the flood, a happy life, regeneration and holiness, just to get you started. In five chapters. I want you to delight in this book. I am going to waste, God knows my heart and intent, a sermon to introduce you to this epistle. And I want to excite you about the Word of God at a deep, minute, myopic level. I want you to focus in on Peter. We typically emphasize Paul, and rightly so, because he's the apostle to the Gentiles, and we are Gentiles. I have preached expositorily through all of Paul's general epistles. I have not done his pastoral epistles yet. But now it's time to take up Peter. And I want you to focus in on these words. Reading the Bible should be fewer chapters, fewer verses, at greater depth, at greater appreciation, at greater delight. This is what I want to do for you this morning. For those that are superstitious about expository preaching... And this is in case you ever run into anyone that thinks the only way that you can preach is expository preaching and Reformed Baptists and other Presbyterians and Daughters of Rome have adopted this idea. But if you get superstitious about expository preaching, would somebody bring me one example of Jesus or Paul ever preaching expositorily? Sorry, there aren't any. You say, well, they may have done it, it just wasn't recorded. That's right. And my manual is what's recorded. But since they've given us these epistles, sometimes we go through them from beginning to end. Sometimes we go into them and pick a topic and then pull from all the places in Scripture. I just don't want anyone to be superstitious that something has to be the right way when the Bible doesn't say that. Now, where's the what's passage in the Bible tells us the closest thing to expository preaching? Nehemiah Nehemiah chapter 8. Very good, Brother Mark. Nehemiah 8, 8, so they read in the book in the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. And that's what we'll do. My brethren, today I just want to, I want, I want to appeal to you about the importance and the delight and your attitude about taking up a book of the Bible like this. Are God's words pleasant and profitable beyond comparison? 
Turn with me to a few places. Job chapter 23. And let's get Job's attitude toward the Word of God. Job chapter 23. We may not even come back to 1 Peter for this service. Now that's slower than slow. When we don't even get to the first word of the book. Do you know what the first word of 1 Peter is? Peter. Okay. And that's important. Do you know that you know more about Peter than all the other twelve put together? You know more about Peter than the other twelve put together and multiplied by ten. Peter's the one that the Lord just opens up to us and we see his personality, we see his faults and his flaws, but we see his excitement, we see his passion, we see his zeal, we see his love for Christ, we see his boldness, we see his timidity at times. We see so much of him, but he was a great man. There's comfort for sinners that God can use a flawed personality, and there's exhortation for the righteous to be bolder in their faith, like Peter was. And I want you to be thinking about him as we go through this epistle. God put the name of the book on it. God put the first word there. Not Peter. The Holy Spirit did. And I want us to learn about Peter. I like Peter. Because he gets himself in trouble sometimes with his zeal. Sometimes he shows his weakness. Oh, I'd rather be a forgiven and productive Peter. Just think along with me. I'd rather be a forgiven and productive Peter than a steady Eddie apostle that is never heard from again. And that Jesus never took anywhere because Jesus considered him the same way I'm speaking about him. Peter went everywhere with the Lord Jesus. I want you to know that Peter is first in every list of the apostles in the Bible. I want you to know when the triumvirate of Jesus' three favorite apostles, Peter was always listed first of those three. Peter was not the first pope of the church of Rome, but he is the prince of the twelve apostles. By his role in Jesus' ministry while he was alive and after his life. Job chapter 23 and verse 12. Look at Job as he describes the the Bible and the words of God, which in Job's time were oral. Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Job esteemed. He chose to value the words of God more than his necessary food. Now we value necessary food quite highly, but this is what Job thought of God's words. Look at Psalm 1. Psalm 1, verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. This is the man that doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. His delight is in the law of the Lord. Do you delight in God's word? And in his law doth he meditate day and night. I want you to get focused on the words of God, delight in them, and meditate upon them. And so I'm trying to stir you up to that by God's words. Look at chapter 19 of the book of Psalms. Psalm 19 and verse 10. After having spent five verses, or four verses, seven, eight, nine, three verses. Seven, eight, nine about the words of God. He says in verse 10, More to be desired are they than gold. God's words are more to be desired. They are of higher value, and you should esteem them and apply effort toward them more than you would fine gold. Yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. There is value and there is pleasure. Let's call it profit. 
There is profit and there is pleasure in the words of God. And the, the writer here, David, by the Holy Ghost, picks the most valuable precious metal at that time, gold, and he picks honey and honeycomb, known for its sweetness, and exalts the Bible above them. It's as high as you can get. And I want you to believe that about the words of God. And then in verse 11, Moreover, they're not just profitable and pleasant. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. There is reward in learning the words of God. This morning when I began with 1 Thessalonians 2.13, the words of God work effectually in you that believe. If you will sit down with this book, and it's unlike any other book, if you'll sit down with this book and believe that these are the words of God and slow your reading down and delight on the sentences and the phraseology and the phrases and ask the Lord to reveal wonderful things to you out of His law, it will feed you like no other book. First Peter included as being one of those books. Look at Psalm 119. Psalm 119, there's 176 short, concise statements about the Word of God in this long chapter. Every verse is a standalone sentence, for the most part, about the words of God. These words of God in Psalm 119 are described as His commandments, His testimonies, His precepts, His statutes, His law, His words. Psalm 119, verse 72. The law of thy mouth is better unto me than thousands of gold and silver. This is what David thought of God's law, meaning God's word. Verse 97. Oh, how love I thy law! Exclamation point. It is my meditation all the day. Oh, how love I thy law! My wife and I have had some wonderful times this past week. She has an app on her little Android device. It's Max McLean. I like Max McLean's reading of the Bible more than Alexander Scorby's because it's a touch slower and he has more emphasis. You may like Alexander Scorby better. I like to slow down. And when I tire of reading, I then let Max read for me while I follow along in my Bible or under the sheets to come into our bedroom at night and see a glow coming from the covers. There's Jonathan asking Sherry, Psalm 18. There's Max reading Psalm 18 to him. The Word of God! Do you love it? I'm nothing special about loving it. But I want to be special about loving it. I want to love it like Job. I want to love it like David. And I want you to love it like Job and David. I want us to delight in the words of God. Never have men had such devices to read the Word of God or to have it read to them. I've given each family in this church the opportunity to have it on your big screen and have it read to you while you look at it and the pages turn. We're so blessed. But I want you to slow down. I want you to slow down and delight in every word of God. You know there's much more in Psalm 119 that I could give you. I want to turn to Jeremiah 15 and and let's find out what Jeremiah thought of the Word of God. Jeremiah chapter 15. Jeremiah 15. You know, Peter's going to tell us in chapter 2, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk 
of the Word. Desire the sincere milk of the Word. You know, Paul would come along and say, it's time for you to grow up and forget the milk. Peter would say, desire the sincere milk of the Word. Sometimes you don't need anything deep. You need something that is precious. And so you should go to a place in the Bible where there is something precious and you delight in it. And I want First Peter and then Second Peter to be our choice of places in the Bible coming up over the next few months. Jeremiah 15 and verse 16. Thy words were found, and I did eat them, and thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart. For I am called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. His word was the joy and rejoicing of Jeremiah's heart. I want that to be true for all of us. Every word of God is pure. Every word of God is pure. Do you believe that in this church? Every word of God. How about the first word of First Peter? Peter. Is that pure? Was he just trying to promote himself? Or did God the Holy Spirit put his name there and remind us who was writing this epistle? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. The Lord has shown us 20. 20 one-word arguments in the Bible where New Testament writers take a single word from the Old Testament and construct an argument from it. The Lord has blessed us abundantly. Those don't exist anywhere else that I know of. That we have called out and the Lord has used them to show us every word that I have written to you is important. And I have demonstrated it by my New Testament preachers of the Gospel, starting with Jesus, that every word is important. And I want every word to be important to you. Can you be excited about one book? And then one chapter? And then one verse? And then one word? Here's how it works. You can pick, use your favorite book of the Bible. My favorite book of the Bible is Hebrews. Because its theme is simple. I'm simple. The preeminence of Jesus Christ. I like that theme. I don't want to have to deal with Jewish legalists. I don't want to have to struggle and sweat over verses that use faith combating Jewish legalists where Paul ends up sounding like an Arminian. That's I'm talking about the book of Romans. And I love the book of Romans, as you should have been able to tell by 149 sermons in recent years. But the book of Hebrews is my favorite book. My favorite chapter is chapter 1. Because it just starts right off with presenting the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're going to press me, my favorite verse is the first verse of the first chapter. And my favorite word is the first word of the first verse of the first chapter of the book of Hebrews. Now see, my book starts with a better word than any other book. God. You say, well, what about Genesis? It starts with a preposition. Forgive me. Brethren, do you know I... Do you know that I love Genesis 1-1? Is anyone doubting that? Are you already constructing a note to me to drop in the offering box? Please. I love Genesis 1-1. I love Romans. Oh, I love Romans. Remember what we did when we got into Romans chapter 1? We went through that slowly, and the Lord taught us so much from one chapter of the book of Romans. But do you delight in God's Word? God. Where is Paul? Paul's the author of Hebrews, absolutely certain without a doubt. But he wasn't going to expose himself because Jews did not like Paul. So he wasn't going to be writing the Hebrews and start the thing off with his name. That would have ruined the whole rest of the book. So he starts it off with God. Now listen, brethren, it just kind of rolls from there. 
the Apostle Paul is going to show the Jews that anything that you pull out of the Old Testament, I can trumpet with the Lord Jesus Christ. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son. Whom he hath made heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Now, what religion do you want to be part of? The one where God spoke to you by prophets, or the one where God spoke to you by his, okay, there we go. I just, I don't, I can't go any further, because I will go further. I will lead you through Hebrews chapter one, and do you know what? I can sit down and I know every clause in it, and I know every phrase in it, and all it does is bring joy and rejoicing to my heart. And the only reason I'm talking about my favorite book of the Bible at the moment, when it isn't even 1 Peter, is to get you excited about slowing down in your reading and just delighting in things. You say, how can you delight in just the word God? Are you kidding me? That's the biggest subject in the whole universe. Oh, Lord, help us. And brethren, I hope you can understand where I'm going in this first service, we will deal with the context in, sh- in just a few minutes. Most people cannot synthesize too much data at one sitting. So we slow down and we take a few verses or we take a few phrases and we take a few words at a time. Most readers cannot synthesize too much. And when we're, when we're dealing topically, and we pull from here, we pull from there, we pull from here, we pull from there, which is scriptural. Because look at the Apostle Paul did it all over the Bible. I mean, in Romans chapter 3, 10 through 18, which we've used recently, he quotes from six places in the Old Testament. But to be able to focus down on some words and to delight, like 1 Peter 1, 2. 1 Peter 1, 2, I know that there are sitting in here many of us that love Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, or 3 through 8, or 3 through 12, or 3 through 14, because it is a summary of our doctrine of unconditional salvation. But Peter did it in one sentence, in one verse. Elect. Now, he doesn't beat around the bush, does he? Elect. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. That is short, but that is a great verse. That is a great verse. I know that if somebody were to say to you, show me where election is taught in the Bible, I believe that before today, you would have turned to Ephesians chapter 1 or Romans chapter 8 or Romans chapter 9. I want to add to your repertoire 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2. Because if you want it condensed into one verse, you have the work of God the Father, the Holy Spirit, and the Lord Jesus Christ, and you have them in their proper order, a sight God choosing you and the Holy Spirit consecrating you to the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied. Oh, if God's elected me and the Holy Spirit has consecrated me and Christ has obeyed and sprinkled His blood on me, Grace and mercy are, I mean, grace and peace are coming my way, and they shall be multiplied. One verse. Amen. You want a verse from 1 Peter to get excited about? You want a verse from 1 Peter that you can get worked up about the first word? Elect. Now remember, oh, there's so much more to say about that. He is writing Jews. 
The Jews already thought they were elect. But these Jews were scattered abroad. They weren't even able to live in their home country. They're out there in the central and western provinces of the Roman Empire in what is now modern Turkey. And Peter just starts right off his uh, <clears throat> first word, elect. He's going to tell them in chapter 2, chosen. He's going to tell them in chapter 2, you were not the people of God, but now you're the people of God. Verses 9 and 10. Verses, verse 9 of chapter 2 has the word chosen, so he defines elect for you. It's, it's wonderful. I want to slow you down, brethren. I want to slow you down and just delight in the word of God. I want you to read its every word and just delight in it and have excitement about it and be stirred up by it and ask the Lord to teach you things from it. What value should we get from the study? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That's what we should get from the study. That's what Scripture is inspired for. Pray for your pastor as we go through this particular expository work in First and Second Peter. As he studies and as he prepares extensive outlines and delivers many sermons, pray that the Lord will open my eyes to behold wondrous things out of His law. We must rightly divide the word of truth to obtain its true sense. We want to grasp all that the Holy Spirit has for us, but we don't want to go past the Holy Spirit in what we bring out of these verses. We want to make it as manifestly clear and plain to all of you. We want to preach it boldly and authoritatively. We want to put spiritual and earthly practice into it. We want to follow a course for optimal learning and retention. We want to see the Lord Jesus Christ because He's the person of all Scripture. Your pastor is the least of all the servants of the Lord Jesus Christ for starting such a project, but God is able to take an ass and forbid the madness of the prophet. He can use me. God can open a book during its preaching by showing me things I've never seen before like He's done before. Amen. Not until we are under the influence of the Holy Spirit and that we are within the context and we are preaching boldly and plainly and God sees and knows that we are fully submissive to every word of His, sometimes in the pulpit, sometimes in my office, God will pull back the veil a little bit further and let me see things more clearly. It's amazing and it's wonderful. And I trust Him because I cannot make it happen. We just ask Him to make it happen. And I, I, hope you'll, I hope that you'll help me that way. The book of Hebrews was one fabulous blessing by the Lord. It was about chapters 3 and 4 when God, the Holy Spirit, pulled back a veil that was on that book and gave much understanding and much confidence for the interpretation of it. God blessed us in 1988 in the book of Hebrews. 2008 in the book of Ecclesiastes, book of Romans, the last four years. He's been very kind to us, a number of other books that we've preached through before as well. We thank God for the contextual light of Hebrews in the Jewish believers shortly before the destruction of Jerusalem. It sheds so much light on the interpretation of that book. Will you labor to learn this epistle with me? Will you get involved so that you can thoroughly retain its lessons and explanations? You could read one chapter a day, Monday through Friday, and read the whole book every week, and that would be so easy to do. You read that first chapter. It's got 25 verses. They're wonderful verses. You know, last night I asked Sherry for her favorite verse in the chapter, then she asked me for my favorite verse, and I said, I think I'll just renumber the chapter from 1st to 25th. Do you have favorite verses in the chapter? There are some wonderful statements in 1 Peter 1. 
Do you know them? If you're reading it every week over the next couple of months, if you're reading 1 Peter chapter 1 every week for the next couple of months, you know, eight times through it or whatever, like that, you will find some verses in there to feed your soul, your heart, your mind, your spirit. You could memorize one or more favorite verses from each chapter during this series. You could listen to the sermons again during the week from the website MP3 postings. You could pray for your pastor to make it manifestly plain and simple for you to grasp it clearly. Learning is going to vary widely over the whole congregation with the prepared and studious far outstripping the casual and neglectful. Context. When we say context, we have six W words in mind. Who, whom, what, where, when, and why. Not necessarily in that order. Who wrote it? Whom was it written to? Why was it written? What kind of a book is it? When was it written? And where was it written? We ask those six questions. That's context for any study of any written material. Let's look at the author. First Peter chapter 1. What's the first word of First Peter? Peter. Okay, the Holy Spirit wants us to know that it's Peter in this particular case. And so the two books are named First and Second Peter. Is there a First and Second Paul in your Bible? Don't take me the wrong way. Paul is the chief apostle. Paul is the great apostle of the Gentiles. But there's no First and Second Paul. There's a First and Second Peter. Now you say, what does that mean? That means this. That I'm a rotten sinner and I have picked up a New Testament and I'm reading my way through it and I find about a man who speaks before he should on certain occasions, sometimes says things he doesn't follow through on, denies the Lord Jesus Christ, disappears from the scene in Acts chapter 15 and verse 7, never to be seen again, found in Galatians, rebuked by the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2.11, and then, as I'm wondering about this Apostle that Jesus Christ had chosen, did, he, did the Lord ever forgive him? Well, then I find First and Second Peter. And that is exciting. You say that's such a simple point. Sinners need simple points. Sinners need simple points to encourage them that though I have failed, and though I've done terrible things against the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and though I've been rebuked publicly, and though everyone knows about my sins, by the way, a trivia question for Peter, how many Gospels record Peter denying Jesus Christ? Why did Paul have to write it down that he rebuked Peter. Why? In Galatians 2.11. Are you at First Peter chapter 1 and verse 1? Watch this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus. What's the word? Galatia. Is there forgiveness with the Lord Jesus Christ? Can you altogether clear yourself in a matter? Did Paul write to the churches of Galatia in the book of Galatians and rebuke Peter to his face and note it there for them all to know? Should that slow you down? That you're guilty of private or public sins? You say that's such a simple point. Well, I'll tell you, great sinners need simple points and simple points light fires in great sinners. No wonder we all love the woman take the woman that washed the feet of Jesus in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50, because to whom much is forgiven, the same loveth much. And Peter loved much. And the Lord showed it by putting Peter in here. As you get toward the end of the canon of the New Testament, there's First and Second Peter. 
Peter was a great writer for this book. With all the Jewish legalists and with Jewish legalistic thinking in Jews that were converted by Paul's ministry, they wanted to know where the chief of the apostles that was Jewish and that remained in Jerusalem for a number of years and that was Jesus' favorite, where did he stand on this treatment of the law of God? Peter's great to write it. And so Peter writes it. And you know what he, what does he call Paul? Our beloved brother Paul, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. What does he say about Paul? According to the wisdom given to him. 2 Peter 3.15. Brethren, these are little tidbits to tell you why the epistle was written. Peter was coming to tell the Jews that were scattered abroad in Turkey that Paul, where Paul had started churches that the gospel that Paul taught was the true gospel. That's why we had 1 Peter 5.12. Peter was perfect to write this. He had a high... He had a uh, he was an important apostle. He was known that way. He knew the Jewish situation well. He had encountered Jewish propensities before and so forth. His name was Simon. His father's name was Jonah. He was Simon, son of Jonah. Or Simon Bar-Jonah. That was his name. Simon. Turn to John chapter 1. Now, uh, Peter doesn't start his book out calling himself Simon, does he? John chapter 1. This is context. Who wrote it? We're going to learn a little bit about who wrote it. His name was Simon, son of Jonah. When Jesus met him, Jesus changed his name. Jesus gave him a name in Aramaic, Aramaic, and in Greek. John records the Aramaic version. The other gospel writers record the Greek version. Let me show you in John chapter 1, and let's get his conversion. we got to start way back at verse 35. Again, the next day after John stood. This is John the Baptist. John 1.35, and two of his disciples. And looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. This is John the Baptist speaking. Verse 37, And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Did they have their priorities right? (laughs) Poor John! Would John have been disappointed? No. John said in John 3 and verse 30, He must increase, and I must decrease. He wasn't disappointed. And they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and saw them following, and saith unto them, What seek ye? They said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, being interpreted, Master, where dwellest thou? He saith unto them, Come and see. They came and saw where he dwelt, and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour, four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two, which heard John speak and followed him, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now, he's not named Simon Peter yet, but remember, I hope, you know, when you're writing a document later, you can use a name that's given to a person later. Okay, please. Simon Peter was his brother, but he was named Simon. He first findeth his own brother Simon, verse 41, and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. Oh, thank you, Lord, for putting that all together for us so that we can know that. 
The Apostle Paul and Luke used Cephas at times for Simon Peter. But Jesus renamed him. If you were to go over to Mark chapter 3 and verse 16, it's going to tell you that Jesus surnamed him Peter. Mark 3, 16. And Simon, he surnamed Peter. Peter's the Greek form of Petra, a rock or a stone. And Cephas is the same in Aramaic. But those are his names. And as we follow him through the Scriptures, sometimes it'll be Cephas, sometimes Simon, sometimes Simon Peter, sometimes Peter. This is our author. He was from Bethsaida, later moved to Capernaum, five or ten miles away, where he was married, and where his mother-in-law lived with him for a time, because the Bible tells us so. What can we learn about Peter? He was an apostle and minister of the circumcision. Look at Galatians chapter 2. He had his work assigned to him, like the apostle Paul had his work assigned to him. The apostle Paul is our apostle. He was chosen by God to carry the gospel to the Gentiles at large. The apostle Peter, however, had the keys of the kingdom of heaven along with the other apostles, and he opened the door of the gospel to the Gentiles by the conversion of the household of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Peter will refer to that event in Acts chapter 11 and Acts chapter 15 when questioned about both about that event in those both places. He led the apostles in Acts chapter 1 to replace Judas Iscariot. He took the gospel to the Gentiles, had two apostles, had two epistles named for him. He was a great apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. What else can we learn? Galatians chapter 2. Verse 7, but contrarywise, the Apostle Paul writing to convince the Galatian Christians that his gospel was a correct gospel, he is back in Jerusalem and he's describing what it was like to be in Jerusalem with the leaders of that Jerusalem church. But contrarywise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, when they saw that the gospel to the Gentiles was committed to me, as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter. Peter was the prince of the apostles to the Jews. Verse, And then we have in, quote, in parentheses, for he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. So effectual means mighty if we compare two words here in this sentence. Verse 9, And when James, Cephas, Now, wasn't he just called Peter in the previous verse? Get used to that. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship, that we should go unto the heathen, and they unto the circumcision. The apostle Peter was the leading force for evangelization of the Jews. The apostle Paul was the leading force in the prince and God's chosen apostle for preaching to us Gentiles. He preached on the day of Pentecost and opened the church to 3,000 new members on that day, just uh, 50 days after he had denied the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that exciting to go into Acts chapter 1? You see him leading the assembly of the apostles. He, he, was, he was humbled. He went out and wept bitterly. You've read it. You know that about him. He went out and wept bitterly, but the Lord Jesus Christ, through a threefold confirmation of him, <coughs> brought him back and told him, strengthen your brethren, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. Peter stood up and did it. And God filled him with boldness. When he was called before the Jewish leadership in Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 5, we ought to obey God rather than man. 
Where did, you know, let's finish Peter's words. We ought to obey God rather than man. My words in preaching it to you. Where did that man come from? But God had filled him with the Holy Ghost. Jesus Christ had forgiven him. And he was bold to preach the gospel. What else do you like about Peter? You know, I like the way he was converted by a brother evangelizing a brother. I hope that you do. He's always first in any list. What list do you want to take a peek at? Let's go to Matthew 10. Let's go to the first gospel and find the first list of the apostles to see how Peter is identified in every list. So when we get the word Peter, opening up first Peter, we want to ask, who is this? So we're asking it a little bit. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 2. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first, Simon. Okay, let's go to Acts chapter 1 and see what happens after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, now we're on the other side of Peter denying Jesus. God's children who have sinned greatly, have labored with their sins and have labored with their consciences and have labored with their reputations, but there is comfort in the Scriptures of God for them. It does not relegate you to a second-class citizen. Watch Peter. This is after he denied the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's only 40 days or so after he denied the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 1 and verse 13. And when they were come in, they went up into an upper room where abode both Peter and James and John. There's the triumvirate, the three favorites of the Lord, and it goes on and lists the others. But that's how Peter is shown honor throughout the pages of Scripture. He was one of the three favorites. Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John. Who saw the daughter of Jairus raised from the dead? Peter, James, and John. Who saw Jesus Christ pull back the veil of His human flesh and show Himself glorified on the Mount of Transfiguration? Peter, James, and John. Who were taken deep into the Garden of Gethsemane to see the Lord Jesus Christ wrestle with His Father before the crucifixion? Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John. In that order. Peter, James, and John. Where? What happened to poor Andrew? Well, at least he converted someone that made the triumvirate. And I'm not picking on Andrew. The Lord chose Peter. As soon as he saw Peter, he beheld him and said, Thou art Simon, son of Jonah, but you're Cephas. You're a stone. You're a rock. And you know, Peter was part of the foundation of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, but he certainly wasn't the cornerstone. There's only one of them, and who is it? The Lord Jesus Christ. He was married. So if he was the first pope, he did not believe in the doctrine or sacrament of celibacy. That's twice in the Bible. Why is that twice in the Bible? Do you know whether Labius had a wife or not? Anybody want to take a venture? Did Labius, it's one of the apostles, have a wife? Why Why are we told that Peter had a wife? And we are told in the gospel accounts and we are told by the apostle Paul, that he led about that sister after Jesus Christ went back to heaven to shut the mouths of the Roman Catholics that teach celibacy. Did he have a couple fishing bonanzas with the Lord? Are they, are they, are they wonderful to read about those bonanzas with the Lord? What did he do after the first one? He fell at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ 
And he said, depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. He was bold to walk on water, and he was also quick to look at the waves and the wind boisterous and begin to sink. Are you ever bold in faith and then you get weak before you know it? Oh, you're in good company. The Lord Jesus is going to reach. All you get it. What do you have to just say? Is that a long prayer? You don't have time for a long prayer when you're slipping under the water. Lord, save me. And Jesus reached forth his hand and said, O ye of little faith, and took him into the boat. The Lord will always reach down and help us. There's so much that could be learned. I don't want to preach about Peter. He was bolder than the rest to profess the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ said, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? You know, they came up with this, and they say some said this, and some said Jeremiah, and some said the prophet. Well, who do you say that I am? Well, there's Peter. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's Matthew chapter 16. And if we go over to John chapter 6, when Jesus turned to his apostles and said, Will ye go away also? Who responded? Peter responded right there on the spot. We are certain and sure and believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God. To whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. That boldness on his part, we love to see it. He had the boldness to promise the Lord he would never be offended, no matter what happened to Jesus. And Jesus humbled him that very night. But he still had some zeal, didn't he, in the Garden of Gethsemane? After he had slept through three times of praying by our Lord, And when Jesus came back, he didn't say, hey, you three. He said, Peter, why can't you stay awake with me for an hour? But when the angry mob appeared, did Peter at least try to stand with his Lord? He pulled out a sword and tried to take off a man's head. You know, the Bible tells us the man's name. His name was Melchus. He was a servant of the high priest. He didn't do a very good job. He just cut off his ear. I remember my I remember my dad as a little I remember as a little boy wanting to know how with a sword you can only get a guy's ear. And dad explained that he may have had a helmet on, and so he was trying to split that helmet and he just missed by six inches and took off his ear. Doesn't matter. All of it's real to me. There was an ear on the ground. And G- Jesus healed that ear, and they still wanted to take him? When God blinds a man, it is blind. Oh, Lord. But there was Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane doing that. It's recorded four times that he denied our Lord. Did Jesus give him a special personal look? Does the Bible tell us that when he had denied the third time, he looked over at the Lord, and the Lord, whatever was happening to him at that moment, turned and looked at Peter. That is in the Word of God. Now, how does that affect you? That is just wonderful. Peter knew the Lord Jesus Christ. They were intimate friends. John may have slept on his bosom at meals, or John may have laid on his bosom at meals, as the Bible tells us, but Peter was very close to the Lord Jesus Christ. He appeared first to all the apostles, to Peter. It's noted three times in the New Testament. He was fearless at Pentecost. He had apostolic power. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, Ananias came in. Who hath tempted you to lie to the Holy Ghost? He confronted him right inside that man. 
and said, you're lying to the Holy Ghost, and he dropped down dead. His wife came in a little bit later. Have you agreed with your husband to lie? They just carried him out. They're going to carry you out right now, thud. You say, could he raise the dead? Acts chapter 9, her name was Dorcas and Tabitha. He raised the dead. He put living people down. And the city of Jerusalem brought their sick into the streets that in case Peter walked down that street, his shadow might at the least pass across them and heal them. That is apostolic power given to uh, this man that wrote these epistles. He had two prison escapes. You know, in Acts chapter 5, they put him into prison. And the next day, he's back preaching in the middle of the temple. And they, they said, what in the world's going on? Send down there and find out how he got loose. Well, we got there, but all the doors were locked and everybody was standing there at full attention. They didn't have a clue. That, and when we went inside, he, 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 he wasn't there. That was a miracle. And then in Acts chapter 12, he's, he was delivered again, even though he was chained this time with how many soldiers chained to him? Sixteen. Four quaternions, four squads of Rome's best chained to Peter. The chains fell off. The doors opened, he walked out into the street and went to the prayer meeting that was praying for him. This is our brother Peter. The audience, the dispersed. The strangers scattered. Strangers because they were Jews not living in Israel. Scattered because they were part of the dispersion or the diaspora. If you've ever heard that word, dispersed is the Bible word. Look at John chapter 7. John chapter 7. This is the audience to whom the epistle was written. John chapter 7 uses the word dispersed for us. Peter used scattered. Do you know how James starts? See, James was also a minister to the circumcision. So when he wrote his epistle, this is how it starts. James, to the twelve tribes scattered abroad. See, scattered abroad. The, James didn't have to write to the ones that were there in Jerusalem and Judea because he was around them and they were around him all the time. But it was the ones scattered abroad. First of all, the Assyrians had scattered them. Then the Babylonians had scattered them. Then the Greeks under Antiochus had scattered them. And then the Romans had scattered them. They had been dispersed into all nations. Was that a fulfillment of prophecy? That was a fulfillment of prophecy. You don't want to worship me in this land that I have given you? I will scatter you in the nations. John chapter 7 and verse 35, without worrying about the context, this particular occasion, because all we want is what it says, Then said the Jews among themselves, Whither will he go, speaking of Jesus, that we shall not find him? Will he go unto the dispersed among the Gentiles and teach the Gentiles? God had promised, and so in about 600 B.C., the Assyrians scattered to the ten tribes. Then the Babylonians in, in about 520 B.C. took the, Jew, the Jewish to, to Babylon. And some of them were scattered and left there. And that's where Peter will end up, by the way, in that city of Babylon. And so this is the audience. When you look at 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout, and it lists five Roman provinces, and they are in central and western Turkey. That is where Paul preached. Those are churches Paul established. And Paul wrote epistles to the churches of Galatia. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he says, As I have given commandment to the churches of Galatia, so I give commandment to the Corinthians. And so we're looking at the who and whom of this epistle. 
Who wrote it? Peter did. To whom was it written? Jews dispersed, living in other countries. This is a long ways from Israel, across the Mediterranean Sea in uh, modern Turkey. Look at look at First Peter chapter two, and let me show you some more evidence of it. Strangers scattered abroad. James would say twelve tribes scattered abroad. John would write in John seven thirty five to those Jews that were dispersed among the Gentiles. Look at First Peter chapter two. You would not believe the reams of paper that have been written on who the book was written to. You wouldn't believe the reams of paper that have been written at the second epistle wasn't written by Peter. Do you know Do you know what he says? This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you. What? I'm not kidding. The second epistle barely made it into the canon based on what the experts say about it. The experts say it was written anywhere between 45 and 65 A.D. Wow, that's a big stretch of time. They don't know, is what I'm trying to say to you. First Peter chapter 2, verse 12. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. There is so much suffering in First Peter chapter 1. Can you think about these Jews being third-class citizens? How were they third-class citizens? They were not the nation that they were living in. They were not of the nationality of the nation they were living in. They were of a different religion as well. But then they converted to Christianity so that their fellow Jewish friends, relatives in that particular area would have persecuted them as well. And so when Peter writes in 1 Peter about suffering as a Christian, I want you to think about it. We have such pampered lives. We are very pampered lives. That's to whom it was written. I don't want to spend any more time on that. What the, what's the purpose of it? For Peter to confirm the gospel Paul preached was the truth. Look at 5.12. This is the second time we've been at this verse, but I want you to see it. By Silvanus. This is one of Paul's traveling companions. This morning from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we ran into his name. By Silvanus, a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose, I have written briefly exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein ye stand. See, Peter wasn't trying to get them converted. They were already converted. They were already converted by the ministry of one Paul. But Peter is telling them this is the true grace of God. And when he gets to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, he will say that Paul was given exceptional wisdom and wrote to you already of these things that I'm writing. What I'm writing to you is nothing new because Paul already has written to you about them. So that's the purpose. Another purpose is for an exhortation to godliness because there was a tendency among the converted Jews to relax their holy living. If you had been living in commandment keeping and obedience to the law of Moses your entire life, I mean, just ticky-tack, 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 obedience to everything in the book of, books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and along came the Apostle Paul and converted you away from that to the gospel of the grace of God, which is also called the law of liberty, there was a tendency to run over into another ditch. And so James, when you look at the epistle to, of James, five, five chapters, it is pressing them to godliness. It's the chapter that says, you have faith without works? Are you kidding me? Faith without works is dead. So it's pressing them to holy living because they were slipping into carnality. 
living in these carnal cities of the Gentiles. And so that's, that's much of the content of First Peter is pressing them to godly living, as you're going to see. A third reason Peter wrote it was to confirm them the second coming of Christ. He starts off with that. He ends with that. He repeats that in Second Peter chapter 3. There are several chapters out of the eight total chapters that are dedicated to the coming of Christ. Fourth reason is the suffering that they as third-class citizens should endure. And a fifth reason for their minority status, that they by their good works would show the Gentiles the gospel by their lives. The method... It is not doctrinal. It is not didactic. It's not logical like Paul's writings of Romans or Hebrews. It is personal, passionate, particular, and practical. It's personal. He will stir you up. It's got lively words in it. It's emotional. And he's going to, he's going to appeal to your passion. He's going to press you. And he's going to go run on to another subject. It's not going to be as didactic and as logical. A and B, therefore C, not with Peter. He's just going to pour himself out on the page. And you're going to see it. He's going to refer to himself sometimes. And the things that happened to him in his life, he's going to tell you that the, I'm now ready to die and the Lord's told me how it's got to happen. Second Peter chapter 1. I was with the Lord on the Mount of Transfiguration. I was in the Holy Mount with Him. And so the method is different than what we would come to expect from the Apostle Paul, but it's still from the Holy Ghost. Don't you love the Word of God that you can go into Psalms or you can go into Ecclesiastes, or you can go into Revelation, or you can go into Hebrews, and you can find these different genres of writing, genres of literature, all by one author. And the writer, the writer comes through, and the genre comes through one author. Oh, 40 writers! 10 plus genres of literature, one author. How about the book of Job? Is that unusual? Job, Eliphaz. Job, Bildad. Job, Zophar. Let's start over. Job, Eliphaz. Job, all these... Holy Ghost. Holy Ghost. The Apostle Paul quotes from the book of Job in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 or 3, and he doesn't quote Job and he doesn't quote Elihu. I love the Bible. Nobody knows the timing and nobody cares. There's nothing, if, if, if something is not revealed to us internally about the timing of one of these epistles, then it doesn't really matter. See, we know that Hebrews was written before the destruction of Jerusalem because in the book of Hebrews it says that that altar and that that temple was still standing and that city was still standing in the, in the 13th chapter. The location, look at, look at verse 13. I think your Bibles are open to 1 Peter chapter 5. This is where Peter wrote from. We're answering the questions, who, whom, why, what, when, and where. The church that is at Babylon. 1 Peter 5.13, elected together. Oh, Peter loves election, doesn't he? I thought that was the word we started with. Elected together with you, saluteth you, and so doth Marcus my son. There's a companion of Paul with Peter. At the end of his life, he's over in Babylon. Do you know where the Catholics say? He was Pope from 33 A.D. to 67 A.D. Martyred by Nero in Rome. There's no evidence Peter was ever in Rome. Who was the apostle for Rome? Paul. He wrote the epistle of the Romans. In Romans chapter 16, when we were there, and Paul went through a list of many, many names, dozens of names, 
What name was conspicuous by its absence? There was no Simon, there was no Peter, and there was no Cephas. Because he was in Babylon. Now that's a long ways away from Rome. Go home and look at a map and put a string between Rome, Italy, and Babylon, Iraq. But that's where Peter was. Because there was a large a large population of scattered Jews in Babylon that hadn't come back with Ezra and Nehemiah. They're mentioned in Acts chapter 2 as having shown up at the day of Pentecost. Much more could be said about that. And we've said it before. We don't need to say it again. The interpretation, our interpretation is based on our presuppositions of the entire Bible and of 1 Peter. You know where we get the rule of Bible study that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation? We get it from 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20. Peter loved Scripture. Peter knew that Scripture was more sure than hearing God's voice from heaven. He is the one that wrote that testimony, even though he had been the one that was on the Mount of Transfiguration. When people have a vision, they are the last ones to give up that vision. Peter had the vision. Peter saw the Lord Jesus Christ, heard God's voice from heaven in Matthew chapter 17, but he is the one that wrote in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. And then he calls it Scripture in the next two verses. And that's how we'll interpret. We will compare Peter with Paul because both of them were simply writers for the one author of the Holy Ghost, the holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost, the singular of God. We're going to use our English Bible instead of worrying about anything else. Forgive me for even saying the word Aramaic or Greek. I just wanted you to know, did Jesus surname him Peter or did Jesus surname him Cephas? Yes. They both mean the same thing. Inspired ambiguity means we will allow more than one interpretation or application of words if both are true and if both fit the words and context. There is nothing so broad as God's Word, though we will not follow origin into spiritualizing and allegorizing the Word of God into nonsense. For instance, in the Old Testament it says, Muzzle not the ox that treadeth out the corn. What do we want to do with that text? Is it speaking of oxen or is it speaking of ministers or speaking of both? Both. Be careful. Yes. When we find that quoted by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, what word does he use to say that it only refers to ministers? Altogether. Well, what does he mean by the word altogether? That there is a sense on these words from Deuteronomy chapter 25 that is more important than you've ever given it credit to. And if you want to look at it right now for the subject that I have under consideration, this deals with ministers. We want to see both. We want to see anything that the Lord will show us because His commandments are exceeding broad. We'll run upon a number of things in this Epistle, as I've already mentioned to you, 1 Peter 5 has a number of similarities to James chapter 4. You will find almost identical terminology. 1 Peter 5, James 4, 2 Peter 2, almost identical to the epistle of Jude. Jude and 2 Peter 2. If you wish the study would proceed faster, be patient, consider others, and thoroughly grasp it with me. If you wish the study went slower, read and review and study to gain comprehension of it. The more you're familiar with 1 Peter as we go through it, the more you're going to benefit and enjoy it. 
Read and study James and Jude if you have extra time because they're related epistles and nearly identical in some chapters. Let's be excited about the Word of God. It's going to start off with, in the second verse, elect. That 1 Peter 1-2, this is what's coming in the second service. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. What a wonderful verse. Taking Ephesians 1, Romans 8, Romans 9, condensing it down into one powerful statement there. Don't we love Romans chapter 5 as well where it talks about the obedience of the second Adam? Well, there's the obedience of Christ in 1 Peter 1, 2. It is one of the most condensed, powerful, complete, definitive statements of our doctrine of salvation anywhere in the Bible put together so tightly and concisely. I want you to love it. I want you to love the whole Word of God. My wife and I, and I'm saying this again, I'm saying it for the second or the third time, all over the Bible, it doesn't matter where you go, just slow down. Just slow down and delight in it. And to, to delight in it with someone else is just an added blessing. Because what, what may not trigger your heart and, and mind might trigger their heart and mind. And then you have this give and take. It's a wonderful thing to share. I hope that the whole church will love the words of the living God and that you will receive them not as they are the words of men. It doesn't matter that Peter wrote it. It doesn't matter if Paul wrote it or David wrote it. They are the words of God through the Holy Ghost. It doesn't matter if Jonathan Crosby preached it or someone else preaches it. As long as it's the truth, it's the words of God when it comes from our King James Bible. May God bless the preaching of His Word.